you're listening to Podcast from the Edge. Welcome back to Podcast from the Edge. I'm really excited about this episode because it's our first installment of our video game dev virtual happy hour series. A series that will explore what happens when video game developers meet on Zoom for virtual drinks in the middle of a global pandemic and talk shop. For our first topic, we decided to tackle something a lot of you might be interested in. How to actually break into the video game business. And we have two industry vets who agreed to lend us their 20 plus years of experience to help you. Evan Skolnick is a former Marvel Comics writer, a shipped AAA game writer, and professor of game writing at Cogswell College. He's been a principal writer and narrative designer on smash hits like Cuphead, Star Wars Battlefront, Concrete Genie, Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2, and many more. Joe Quadera is a veteran AAA game designer who's worked as a combat and systems designer at Crystal Dynamics and a design director at 2K. He's credited on Tomb Raider, Soul Reaver, SOCOM, Fortnite, Borderlands, Civilization, and too many others to count. He now owns his own consulting company called Recurver, which helps indie teams get their dream projects funded. We had an amazing and insightful conversation about how we got into games and what advice we had to those looking to break into the industry and stay in the industry. So pour yourself a drink because it's Game Dev Virtual Happy Hour. Hi, I'm Joe Quadera. I'm a designer. I've been a designer for a while. Started in the industry in QA in 2001, and now I have my own company, Recurver, where I help indies get their games funded and their dream projects made. And I'm Evan Skolnick, and I'm currently a game writer and narrative designer, also a professor of practice teaching game writing at Cogswell College in San Jose. I've been in games for just under 20 years, came in as a producer, and prior to that I've worked at Marvel Comics as a writer and editor, so I eventually, over the course of my game development career, transitioned slowly but surely into more of the narrative side of things, and that's what I do full-time now. Who was who's the bark? Yeah. And that was Gretel. Bark. Gretel is Gretel is now introducing herself. Yeah, so Gretel is a game developer dog. Gretel um, has worked for Telltale Games most famously, and she was on many more titles than I was. Gretel, come here. <laughs> so, what what games have you guys worked on? So yeah, so starting off, I was pretty fortunate. I got to work on Soul Reaver on the. Well, it was on PlayStation 1 and Dreamcast, but then I was on Soul Reaver 2, which was PlayStation 2. And then uh, that team became the Tomb Raider team eventually, after Crystal Dynamics took it from Core. So I was on the Tomb Raider franchise for a very long time. And then I was at Big Huge Games, where I worked on Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, which is a terrible name, but a really fun game to play and work on. And then since then, I've been part of a lot of projects. So like briefly, Fortnite, so yay me, <laughs> and Borderlands, Civilization, Mafia, XCOM, lots of 2K yeah. titles. And then now the um, contracting consulting puts me on a lot of titles, and I really don't think I can talk about all of those yet. So, Yeah, I saw that Civilization was in your, your bio, and that, that's impressive because I think that's probably my, still my favorite game. I Which mean, Civilization did you work on? Uh, so it would have been... Five, six, and well, after five, so Beyond Earth, which was the one in space, and then 
six. But honestly, when you're in publishing, to say that I worked on it was I reviewed builds. I shook hands of the people that were actually implementing work on it. So I get credited with a lot of titles now that I've been in publishing, basically. And now you have your own consulting yeah. business. Yeah, I've been doing that for three years now. So you go around to different studios and you help them out with design issues. Yeah, they tend to come to me for melee combat. They want help with melee combat. They want help with their action game design or their scope. It may be boss battles. It may be, hey, we are just in over our heads with melee combat. And sometimes it's just we are starting out and we don't know what to do. I get a lot of joy out of it. What about what about you, Evan? I mean, Evan and I worked at Telltale's Games for a, a time together, but Evan's been working in games for much longer than I have. I guess the probably the most famous game that I worked on is one of the ones that never shipped, and that is uh, Star Wars 1313. Where Lucas so, Yes, never fails to elicit groans from people who were looking forward to that game. Uh, I was the lead narrative designer on that, and but uh, on games that have shipped, I was the lead writer on Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2. I was the writer on a recent game from Sony, Pixel Opus, called Concrete Genie. The writer on Cuphead, and many, many other titles in, in different roles, mostly narrative. But again, early in my career, I was, I was serving mainly as a producer. So kind of being the project manager, and in some cases, somewhat of a creative lead, or at least define the vision for a game. So um, some of the other titles I worked on Early in my career in games were was as producer. At that time, being a producer, at least the, the companies I was working at, also meant being kind of the creative vision holder. Not necessarily the lead designer, but certainly kind of driving the vision for the project. So uh, over time, that seemed to, to change. But when I was doing it, it, it was it was still fairly fairly creative, as, as well as obviously involving schedules and spreadsheet. So producer turned writer. Yeah, I, I mean, right, writer turned producer turned writer. Because I was, again, an, an editor and writer at Marvel Comics before I eventually made my way into games. What did you write at Marvel? You know, lots of little little things. I wasn't I wasn't like writing a major series like Spider Man, but I I was the writer on a series called New Warriors. You know, I wrote a lot of little annuals for like The Incredible Hulk and Excalibur and Deathlock and stuff like that. So, but I was you know I was there full time as an editor, so the freelance writing was mostly done in my spare time. Nice. And so, like I was saying before, we worked at Telltale Games, and I'll give me a little segue into um, my background. And this, this is my podcast, but what I do for a living is I'm also a writer and narrative designer in video games. And I got my start at EA Mobile, writing mobile content. Well, to even go back further than that, I was a journal, like I was editor of my college newspaper, and then I was a freelance journalist for several years. I like to go to the Austin Film Festival a lot. It got me into screenwriting. I wrote some screenplays. I got accepted to film school to get my MFA. I went to UT Austin, studied screenwriting. From there, I really thought I was gonna try to do film and television. And I ended up getting a really amazing internship at the very last part of the last season of Battlestar Galactica. And it was a really amazing internship. And then I got some production, post-production jobs, and I realized that I am not a producer, and, and I'm really bad at being <laughs> organized and driving around Los Angeles delivering dailies to like every studio ever. But also, I, I as much as I love screenwriting, my my undergrad, I, I did edit my college newspaper as an undergraduate, but I was also a cognitive psychology major, and so I kind of missed 
innovation. Everyone is in, in Hollywood is in the same race to be a TV writer or to get a screenplay made, but they're all very formulaic for the most part. And I felt like interactive narrative and video games was a kind of a new like opportunity to, to try to tell stories in ways that they haven't been told before. But there was also like an opportunity there. It was like, you know, film in the 1920s, right? Like you have new technology, here's a way of telling stories. Uh, it's kind of, a, the, the opportunities are a little bit more open. So I got jobs wherever I could. I first got a job as an assistant at a small company called Five O'Clock Games in the US, which is now much bigger. They're, they're, they're releasing some really great games. And from there, I, I, I wrote mobile content for EA Mobile. Then I went into advertising for a little bit. And then I got a narrative design job in the Bay Area, which led to the job at Telltale within the year that I was here. And um, at Telltale, I worked at the beginning of Minecraft, like the end of Tales from the Borderlands. The like, but I, you know, I just wrote dialogue. I, I wasn't really a creative force behind that game. The beginning of Minecraft story mode, but most like notably, I worked on both seasons of uh, Batman, a Telltale series, season one and season two. And, and Evan and I worked on season two together. Um, the first part of it at least. So yeah, now I uh, have my own company and I have been contracting with Ghost Story Games, formerly Irrational, for the last few years actually. So I've been kind of doing what Joe does. So all three of us are doing consulting pretty much, right? Because yeah, I do it as well. This is the consulting episode. And actually, yes. <laughs> also all three of us have been producers at one point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what's funny is, Evan, you talk about production with a creative aspect to it. Mm. And the line of thinking that I've been brought up in through whatever studios I've been in is like producers don't touch creative. And there are other studios where producers do touch creative, we aren't those. And it's so interesting to like hear, oh, you even talked about maybe the, the migration or the, the, the change of that role even over time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it was all at one studio. It was uh, at Vicarious Visions in upstate New York, which is yep. still there, still going strong. A very, very good studio, great place for me to... It wasn't my first job in games, but it was probably the first real studio I worked at, and they were they were acquired by Activision, I think, not more than a year after I got there. And so they were, they were a second-party Activision studio. And, yeah, when I got there, producers, like, they were... I was working mostly on handheld titles, like Nintendo... Uh, GB Game Boy Advance, and then later the DS. Yeah, the the teams were very small, and there wasn't like a game director, and so you know, it was it wasn't unusual for the producer to, well, they called them project managers actually at first. That we, we we kept trying to tell them, get them to change it to producer because it was more in line with the industry title. But and they eventually did. But yeah, it was you had a lot more of a vision holder role for it, and kind of making sure we didn't veer off of that. And then over time, you know, once I got there, and even before that, you know, I, I, once I got into games, because I had kind of migrated very gradually over kind of step by step without any kind of plan to get into games. Once I got into games, I found that the narrative content that was going in, you know, was, wasn't always so great, you know. It was, it was being done by designers and who had a, a million, other, million other things that they had to do, and some of them had a, a knack for narrative, and maybe some of them didn't have as much of a knack for it. So I would kind of step in, especially on titles that I was a producer on, and say, look, how about if I, I used to do this for a living, why don't I, what if I take a look at this dialogue and take a swing at it, maybe do a polish on it. And so when I was at Vicarious Visions, I started doing the same thing, and other producers started asking me to do that on their games too, because they, they saw that I was, this was something I could do on top of my producer role. And 
and I enjoyed doing it. And so over time, that became the main thing I did until eventually when the, the studio landed this big opportunity, uh, Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2, I was like, guys, I used to work at Marvel as a writer. I'm here. Are you really going to hire some outside writer to do this? And they're like, no, 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 you should do it. So that's when I got to spend like a year, year and a half away from being a producer and just focusing on this the narrative with a narrative team on staff uh, on that title. And once I was doing that, I realized, oh my, this is what I should have been doing the whole time. And this is combining the, the, the knowledge of how to make, how games are made. And of course I already knew how stories are made and I kind of had learned how they can play together nicely. So from that point on, it's all I wanted to do, but uh, after that game shipped, um, there, there wasn't going to be a Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 in the cards at that time. So the studio went back to doing different kinds of games like Guitar Hero games, which didn't need any narrative. And so I got kind of uh, put back into the producer role and I found that it had kind of changed while I was away and it was it was much more strictly, you know, management. And, that, and, I, and having come down off the high of being a lead writer for a year and a half, it was a, quite a kind of, bit of a shock to go back into production. And at that point, I, I began looking around for what could I do next that would, that would be more like what I was doing before. So I kind of wanted to pick a topic that I thought would be something that everyone would be interested in, which is how to get into game development. So I'm going to be asking pointed questions, I think, about that in your experiences and how it's changed over the years. I feel like a lot of people are interested in game development for obvious reasons, and it kind of can feel like a mystery to get to the job that you want to be in. So I was wondering if you guys could talk about how you guys got into game development. And if Joe, if you want to go first, that would be great. Mm. Okay. Well, I was really into computers and music, so I was doing what they call mods. So it's like uh, how like the original Nintendo Atari music was done using a program called Fast Tracker 2. So that was like the mid-90s. I was playing some games, but not a lot. And I went... I got really into art, because I was always into art and drawing, and so I felt like the proper route would be to be a graphic designer. I went to San Jose State for graphic design, was there for three years, and just was discovering that San Jose State might be okay with graphic design, but they were really slow to adopt anything with computers. They had even some high-end SGI machines for 3D work, and they just were underutilized, and I tried to get in there to use them, and there's just sort of obstacles being thrown up in front of me. Meanwhile, I was playing tons of fighting games, like Tekken in the arcade at the Student Union at San Jose State, and also at the Golfland, and I learned through fighting games that there were game designers coming down on Wednesdays, and that was their job, and I had not heard of that before. I had not realized anybody could do game design as a job and so I was just like um how did you get this job and how can I get it everybody's answer was oh we all started in QA and right well I feel like and we won't reveal what year this is because we're all like you know super young but like (laughs) when we were in school there weren't game design programs no like there is now like you couldn't major in game design you couldn't get a an MFA in game design you could go to film school or art school. Yeah, and, and if you think about it, like my brain would not have made sense that game design was a job or like in the same way that I thought I could not necessarily get a job being an artist. 
even though right. I really wanted to be an artist or a musician, I just didn't think that there was work for that. So I was choosing graphic design because I felt that there was work. And then when I found out there were game designers that made a living doing that and they could spend their evenings playing video games, I was just like, That That okay. makes a lot of sense. And also that era, graphic design was a big deal in the late 90s, early aughts. Mm-hmm. It's web, web development. Says the women that the did not want to reveal the title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, web development was exploding then and so if you understood how to make web pages look nice and how to make logos and how to do graphic design you had a job the video games yeah i guess you're right when i never really thought about like who makes these and what exactly are they doing like what's their skill set wasn't quite sure yeah it was a big unknown but when they all started with qa i said okay and i made a resume dropped out of college handed my resume in and bugged them until they gave me a job. And what studio was that? Crystal Dynamics in Menlo Park. A good first job. Yeah, it was really awesome. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear our backgrounds kind of overlapping here because in, in college I majored uh, in English, journalism, and graphic design. So it's intriguing. You're, you're every game designer. You're every game designer. All of what you guys have done. But I had no aspirations to work in games at that time, um, you know. And, and Shannon, you were the you're the editor of your college newspaper. Meanwhile, I was writing a comic strip in my college newspaper at at, uh, at UConn, which was a daily five days a week newspaper with like you know twenty pages of actual news from the AP and ten thousand readers every day. And um, it was uh, that was, and, and to me that was like you know that was fun. Um, obviously, I was writing news articles too for my classes, but I was really, you know, my dream job was to work at Marvel Comics, and eventually I was able to make that happen when I graduated. But before that, I was a short time as a, as a newspaper reporter. But yeah, my, my I never really I loved playing games right from the very beginning, and I'm old enough to have been there at the very beginning of people having games in arcades and, and in their homes. But it never occurred to me that I would be able to do that because I was I had zero interest in programming, and I wasn't a good enough artist to create digital art, and I didn't even have a computer till I was in college. So yeah, it wasn't something I really thought much about. I loved playing them, but so just through a series of misadventures coming out of comics and working, going from Marvel to Acclaim Comics, which had purchased Valiant Comics. And um, as things evolved there, I got more involved in video game strategy guide development, uh, which is what our publishing arm was slowly turning away from comics and toward that. So I was able to see at least the publisher side of how games were developed. But I still didn't see a, a place for myself in that industry. I was just on the periphery helping with strategy guides. And then after after that, I, I worked at a, a digital a web house, you would call it, I guess, back then. You know, basically a, a place that creates websites and CD-ROMs for corporate clients and learned how the technology stuff works. And then eventually side slipped into games because I was managing technical creative projects. So it wasn't a plan, but it was a really great fit you know, by, at that point. And, and of course, I was very passionate about it because I had played games right, right, right through the whole the whole time. I've been playing games. It just didn't occur to me that I would be someone who could help make them. Yeah, I mean, I had a similar experience in, the, in terms of when I was when I was an undergraduate. I edited my college newspaper, but I honestly thought I was you know, for a while. I was planning on going to get a PhD in cognitive psychology and learning how people process, process language. You know, I was always a writer. But I was kind of like keenly, I was like a very cynical teenager. So I was like, 
Well, I mean, I would like to write literature. You know, I wanted to write frou-frou, Margaret Atwood-inspired literature. But that's probably not going to pay anything. So I could be a professor and study cognitive psychology and, and do some cool research and write, you know, and write short stories and novels. And then I had like a lot of life upsets my last year in school. And um, I wrote my thesis, was an editor of the college newspaper at that point because I, I met the bandwidth. And I just decided to throw caution in the wind and being like, well, you know, I love to write. And if I don't try to be a writer, I might regret this. I can go back to grad school if I feel like I'm failing. And that's, that's kind of what I did. And it kind of worked out. I mean, it does take time. I, like, I want to caution people. Like, just because you even get into a good MFA program for writing or game design, it doesn't mean your first job is going to be a game writer or a near designer or a game designer of any kind. And I feel like there's this false expectation going on. And I feel like in film school, people are already past that. Like, you can go get an MFA from USC, NYU, UT Austin, any of the, the top programs. The chances of you becoming a screenwriter or even a, an editor or a cinematographer or a director is almost zero after graduation. You're going to be someone's assistant. <laughs> and and yeah. they're going to yell at you about not having the right Starbucks you know, order <laughs> and like, where's my dry cleaning? It's very swimming with sharks. That's that's the Hollywood model, and that's the expectation you're given. But because because that that's kind of how the studio systems work. But because video game companies are corporate, people think they're just going to graduate from a program. They think that their skill sets are applicable. Whatever they learned is the way it is, which I don't necessarily think is true. And then they're going to get a game design job. But I think what the disappointment is, is that they're competing with people with like 10 or 20 years experience with those same jobs. Right, well, I mean, I, I certainly know with, with my students in the game writing program, I, I make it very clear to them that they should not expect their first job out of college to be have anything to do with, with game narrative, that they should be, you know, we that's one of the reasons we train them mainly as game designers, so they will be more competitive, because if, if being a game designer is competitive, then try to be a, a, a game writer is, you know, even more so because the number of people who want to do it is very, very high, and the number of available positions is very low. Um, so my advice usually is to try to get in the door at a studio in a more generic role like a designer, where their their designers are needed more often, and more of them on a project usually than a writer or narrative designer. And then once you're in a studio, you, you can then begin to try to shift over to that narrative side, kind of like I did, and I've seen that happen before. So my students, yeah, I mean, we see the, the cream of the crop of our students end up at the bottom rung, like you said, QA. I had I had one uh, recently, one of our star pupils ended up being a content manager, which is narrative related, as his first job out of school, and, and he beat out like a hundred other people to get it. So we were we were very proud of him, but but very difficult to do. And uh, so I kind of braced them for that, and said, look, don't don't have any illusions. You're going to start off probably in a different department you want to be. That's okay. The main thing is to get your foot in the door at a studio and have them uh, know you and have them be impressed with you and then try to make a move toward, you know, eventually where you really want to be. It's a double-edged sword, and I think Joe can talk to this a little bit too, because now there are game design programs, you know, from, you know, prestigious private universities, specifically USC and NYU, and they both have undergrad programs, they both have MFAs in game design now. 
so there's there's an expectation, but also it feels like people are now they they pinhole you at a much younger age when you first come in, and it, it's not so like it used to be. Everyone started in QA, or most everyone. If you're young enough, you started in QA, and you could work your way up into a, a designer and to art to writing whatever whatever your wherever your talent and interest really was. If you when you make allies with that studio, and you and you kind of prove your worth, and you and you also I guess QA is a really good way of learning how those games work, specifically studio to studio, because games are different depending on the studio that you're in. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I'm curious, is that really the case now? Like, if you graduated from college, is getting a job in QA a good way of going up the ranks now? I, I mean, I, I, I'm seeing it happen. Right. You know, and, yeah. and, you know, so I, I, I believe that is still one path. I, I mean, I've seen students come in as a junior designer, as a junior artist. Internships are really important if you can get one. That's a great way to get your foot in the door in a studio while you're still in school. Not a lot of not not a lot of studios offer them, but some do. There was an internship program at Telltale. Yeah, right? I think that was one of the best things that studio did. Yeah. I mean, so, was, I mean, yeah, yeah that, that's a great way to, to get that experience while you're still in school. So I, I, I don't believe that every single Student, student ends up going to QA, but it is definitely one of the paths that we see pretty often. And like you said, it's a great way to, to learn, to see the behind the stage as to how games really come together. And you learn, you'll learn so much in QA uh, about, about the process, especially if they let you in on the process early enough. It's one, it's one way, it's not the only way though. What about, what do you think, Joe? Because you came up through the QA route. What, what do you think the opportunity is now? I think it's competitive, so the hard bit is out of, say, for every 10 studios out there, two of them have a in-house QA that connects with the rest of the development team, whereas most studios outsource their QA or it's so bifurcated that QA just doesn't overlap with development at all. It's so QA in those departments may still be helpful for a little bit, but I wouldn't spend too long there. Um, highly recommend going to a QA at a small studio that embeds QA because more likely than not that studio has more work to do than they have people and you can stay after hours and build levels, help out with production, get in on the art scene, do audio design. There's a lot of things that QA can pick up if they're also doing their QA jobs uh, this, like effectively. So are you kind of re recommending smaller studios and where you can wear more of those hats? Totally. I, I think college degree or not, I think experience uh, really teaches a lot. And it's not so much about making friends with the people that are just like you. It's about making friends with everybody and understanding who has a solid work ethic and then sticking with those people because they will probably teach you more than, say, your smoking buddies or whatever else. And, and that, that just takes experience and sort of understanding who talks a big game and who actually like makes it happen. But I think that's I think that's really good advice. It's it's not about who your best friend is. It's about who's the person who's the, the hardest working and the one that who's trying to bring the quality to the next level and is trying to go to the team when they have problems, you know, and they're communicating. Although it's the collaboration and the work ethic, I think. Yeah, I've seen kind of all sides of it. I guess like in two thousand four, Crystal started hiring interns and entry-level people straight from CMU and that was very awesome and very effective but I would say 50% or more of the CMU grads 
just had unreasonable expectations of what their salaries would be. They were exiting CMU, looking for an entry level job in production or design, asking for like 120K. And it's like, I don't think anybody at the company, except for maybe some of the execs at the time made 120K. It was just sort of like, mm, okay, this isn't going to work as much as we thought it will, but we found still some excellent candidates that came and stayed in the games business and others did not, but it's either way, they were all pretty awesome people and they came with experience too. I think that was the cool thing about CMU at the time. And I think more schools are like this now is that they would graduate with actual dev experience where they tried out different roles. They worked on different projects. They had a lot of experience already coming out of school. Or I think if you're coming out of school with just a degree and very little experience, I think that's a harder position to be hired from where I often advise students like get on a mod project, get on an indie project, feel what it's like to work with people and have no, <laughs> no rank to pull. No, like I, this is my project. Therefore do this. It's like, how do you work on a team level? Yeah, no, I feel like my biggest advice to people is to get the job and create value for yourself. And creating value for yourself isn't being like, this is my project and I want it this way. It's literally going to the people who are in charge of it, the people who are trying to make it happen and, and saying, how can I help you? And if you do that, usually, unless you're kind of like in a crazy toxic environment, that will, that will work for you. If, you. if you offer to help in whatever way that you can. And that's how you build value for yourself. It's figuring out where the problems are where the gaps are, where, where work isn't being done. I mean, I think, you know, Evan, you talked to that a little bit, like you're on a project, it needs writing polish, or there isn't a narrative, and there's an opportunity there to help that game get a story, do a polish pass on the writing because there's, that's not anybody's wheelhouse there. As long as you're not stepping on someone else's toes. That's the only right. thing. Like you, right. have to, you, have to feel, you have to see where is the gap. Where, what's missing here that no one else is doing here or willing to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a big thing for when people are, especially they're graduating from college or graduate school and they're getting jobs, remembering that it's really the value they're bringing to other people right now. They're not in charge yet. That's a good point. Yeah, you're just helping somebody else build their vision. And the best you can do that, the more successful you will be. And you might even get buy-in on that vision later. Or you certainly will get buy-in on, on a vision on another project. That sounds exactly like what Evan's talking about with, I was doing project management slash production, but also found there was a need for writing and I could do that. So I jumped in there and did it. And that's how I became a gameplay designer. It, there was no gameplay designers at Crystal. There were just level designers and programmers. I didn't know program that. No games. That's, I, I was, was going to say, my eyes just bugged out of my head when you said that. <laughs> so I was like, what? No, we had combat designers, but nobody called themselves like a gameplay designer, right? So it was like, um, who handled the controls for Lara Croft? And it was like, there was nobody doing that. It was a programmer and animator combo. And they were having trouble getting all the mocap data to actually like feel good on the sticks. And we were kind of running up against the wall with it. So I just said, give me two weeks with the system. I'll learn it and I'll see what I can do. And we were just out of options. So everybody said, okay, fine, give it to Jill. <laughs> and, uh, and in two weeks, I got it feeling generally pretty good. There were still a lot of things to fix, but I had started to like work with the system and start cutting animations up. So I carved out the role for myself. 
I, I think what? most most people I know that will move up. And but that was very that was very similar to it. I mean, I kind of you know once I started helping on those projects in that way, I realized this is a place I really can offer a lot of value to the company. Plus, it was much more interesting to me, frankly, than than spreadsheets and, and schedules, right? So, so it, you know, I basically said and to all the other producers once they started asking me for my help, I said, well, whenever you want me to help, please do. But you know, what I also said was, please, maybe not call me in when you're at beta. And your script needs a polish. You know, I, I, I can help a lot more if you bring me in earlier because, yes, I can polish the dialogue, but structurally your story here could really have used some help. Of course, it's too late now. This is the bane of the game writer even today many times, especially a contractor, being brought in very late um, to kind of patch things together after the team has tried and, you know, found that things were a little more, more challenging to write than they thought. So, but yeah, yeah. Um, seeing that you can bring value especially in an area that you find personally fulfilling uh, you know it's, a, it's a definitely a win-win if you can make that happen it's also a good opportunity to step up and broaden your skill set and kind of push your creativity too you know i've um i was always a writer but given i really have enjoyed the chance over the past few jobs that i've had to step up as like a narrative designer and i know that it's, it's the same as writing in some ways but when you're you know, from dialogue choices to quests to, I mean, I've even done some educational narrative design where you're trying to teach the story, pushing myself to think that way is not something I was, I was imagining I was going to be doing when I was like writing newspaper articles and editing them, you know? Well, like I tell my students and other, anyone who will listen, you know, the job that I do now did not exist when I was in college, literally did not exist. And so I kind of encourage students who are in college to, to, to think that way, to realize that the job that you have down the line may not exist today. And, and the point of a college education isn't just to be ready for one particular job in five years, but it's to be ready to handle any job, you know, in 15, 20 years and, and to kind of have that um, mindset. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to think that there was just no such thing as a game writer when I was in college or well beyond. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think it's for me either. I, I don't think there was really, I've never heard of the idea of a game writer before. I mean, you, you had dramatists, you had playwriters, and you had screenwriters and TV writers and late night, you know, joke writers for the I mean, night TV. What would but you call, that, yeah. I mean, just philosophically, what would you call like Roberta Williams or like, um, who is the what guy that did Day of the Tentacle? They were game designers. They were game designers. I mean, yeah. I mean, a lot of these, I mean, even, even design was something that wasn't really separated from you know, the programming and the, like, you know, back, way back then, it was basically one or two people, right? It was a right. programmer and an artist, and the design was kind of just assumed to be part of the programming, right? It wasn't even, hadn't even broken away from, from engineering yet. So over time, we've seen these roles as games have gotten bigger and the roles have gotten more specialized because the productions are so big that you, you eventually saw design being separated from the programming. That, that was a thing that wasn't always the case. Yeah. So yeah, back back then, they, they did almost everything. And they wouldn't have, if you had asked them, what, what do you do? They probably would have said, well, I make games. I develop games. They, they might not have said designer or, I don't know what they would have said, but, but certainly, you know, those roles were much more uh, unified in the early days than they eventually became, right? Yeah, totally. I, I, so Crystal Dynamics in 2001, Amy Hennig was the de facto writer, essentially, because she had just wrapped up Soul Reaver 1 but I'm not even sure what her title was on that project, but it was very clear she was 
in charge of narrative, obviously. But I but there was a sense that this was very new at that time. Well, yeah, video games, the way they've evolved since the 80s. Yeah. And it's been amazing. I mean, now they're cinematic experiences. The way a lot of the But they can be. And, but the, the funny thing, I mean, just be, talking, yeah. like, Evan's talking about the programmer designer sort of like all in one. And I've been sort of thinking so much about <coughs> the Firaxis crew, right? The That entire microprose kind of Firaxis. You got Sparky Pants. You've got all these companies on the Eastern Coast that have built kind of digital board games and all of their designers know how to program. And there's sort of, it's a, it's a requirement that if you design for these games that you are a programmer first and there's still that mindset there. And I remember even my own entry into Baltimore at Big Huge Games came with some roadblocks of like, oh, this guy doesn't know how to program. How can he be a designer? And it was really, it was really interesting for me, but just to sort of see the specialization kind of like evolve over time on different coasts even it's like we have just we use the same words we don't mean the same thing no that's really interesting that you bring that up because i remember when i first moved up to the the bay area in 2014 the idea that you're a designer and a programmer means you're like a unicorn right like programmers (laughs) and engineers are separate they're technical and the designer is like a, a pure creative the writer is a pure creative and they're you know they're sort of they're separate from each other. And the only places you're gonna see those exist in, are in like small indie companies, in startups, big companies. You go to Sony, Take-Two, 2K, Rockstar, everyone is extremely specialized. So it's, it's interesting to navigate because if you, there is a little bit of like, I won't lie, I think I see people, and I've probably been guilty of it too, you get someone's resume and they tell you they're a programmer and a writer, and you're just kind of like, well, maybe you know how to code in Unity, but are you a writer? Like, why why haven't you dedicated your entire being to only writing, right? And I, and it, I don't necessarily think that's a fair way to think about things, but people are thinking about things this way now. It's a line drawn really hard in Silicon Valley, too, because it's if you know how to program, your worth is probably twice that of a designer in terms of salary. So sure. um, <laughs> there's kind of just a sense of like, if you're programming and programming for games, you're doing it for passion because um, you could be making two or three times your salary at a startup somewhere. Or at Google. Yeah, yeah or exactly. Google. Or at Google. Well, it's, you have to be especially talented, I think, to work at Google. I know plenty, but most video game programmers are especially talented. And the ones I know that are solid, just like right there, good game programmers, they get offers all the time from Google and they're able to leverage that. They're able to say, hey, so-and-so company, I got another offer from Google. How about another day off a week, you know, or whatever? Like, and it's just, they, they can really I turn I it. that problem. Yeah. <laughs> so at this point, we got way off topic and onto this huge hour-long tangent about video game writing and design and why trying to get into writing is so much more competitive than other game dev disciplines. We also talked about how story elevates a game from good to great and what actually makes a good writer and writing. It was a fascinating conversation and you can listen to it in the very next episode, which is actually a bonus track. But for now, we're gonna continue with our more general discussion about breaking into the business. You know, and this is something that, you know, going back to the theme of this is how you kind of get into like video game 
development, and specifically we're talking about the more we're all creative, so there is production experience here, but we're all designers and writers. Understanding that it's not about you. It's about how much the players are going to enjoy themselves, which means you might have an idea or a design concept or a line of dialogue or a story beat, and if it does not work, you have to let it go or make it work within what the player wants, what the player experience is supposed to be, what the curated experience is supposed to be. And I, and I think it's weird because I'll talk to people about, you know, sort of being a professional creative and like people will be like, well, I'm really glad that you just, you know, you get to do whatever you want and make, you know, money with your art. And I would just, you get to live off, you know, you get to be a professional creative in that way. And I'm just kind of like being a professional creative a lot of the time just means you're doing things for the player. It has nothing to do with you. And a lot of times you're just executing somebody else's vision. They have a vision. You're a writer. You can help them with the writing part. They have they have designers that can help them with the design part. They have artists that can help them with the art part. And, you're, and your job is to put yourself aside and put your craft first. And I think, you know, a lot of people, I think it's a maturity issue too when you see with artists. I always use like the analogy of um, Michelangelo like he, he, the Sistine Chapel wasn't his idea. The Vatican, the Vatican asked him to do that. And he crunched, he, cr he had to lay on this like, so he's like, he had to lay on this like wooden board while he was painting, like that was elevated all the way to the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And he, it destroyed his back. And in the meantime, the Vatican was fighting with him about creative choices and hiring writer, like, I'm sorry, other artists or writers <laughs> to like, <laughs> undo his work and paint over him and stuff. And, you know, like that's, you know, and then he came out of it with a bad back. I mean, I mean, I'm sure he got paid pretty well. <laughs> His back was broken. He probably crunched for, I don't know how many years on that. Like, And he had a whole bunch of Vatican execs, like, real mad at him. Yeah. and I, I the, take, the original licensor problem. Yeah, the original licensor problem. I take that analogy one step further and be like, if you want to be a designer or creative in any, any form in this industry, now imagine painting the Sistine Chapel and then it gets thrown out and you're like, you got to go paint something else instead. It's like we get attached it's to our work. It's dark, but yes, it's totally true. We get yeah. attached to our work. We think it's perfect or whatever, and maybe it is in our heads or our minds. And the moment somebody else starts working on it with us, it changes somebody else steps in and says no it's got to be done differently or oh, worst of all joe focus testing <laughs> yeah or it's just not playing well you, right? you watch someone play it and suddenly you realize <laughs> run right past it yeah it doesn't work <laughs> yeah yeah and it's just like we unattachment to the work is so important and i think to your point shannon like it's it's been for me even 20 years in the making and only now am i realizing my identity is not in the work that I do, right? It's not in the completed product. That is not who I am. If I attach my identity to the work that I do, then I will fight and clamor onto it and I will be really upset when it gets thrown out. But that is not, that is no longer a part of my identity. My identity is something else. Um, I think entirely. this is an interesting, interesting point. I had a really good screenwriting person professor at UT Austin. His name is Stuart Kelvin. And, you know, I wish he was online. He's not. Um, he's a fantastic writer. And he, he still has given me some of the best notes that I ever, I ever got. And, and one of the things he said is, it's, it's uh, you're not your ideas. Right. 
You're not your idea. You're your, you are your ability to have those ideas. Yeah. So if an idea doesn't work or a script doesn't work or you don't sell it or it doesn't work out or if, it, if someone buys it and it doesn't get produced or whatever, let it go. You are your ability to do that again. That is what you are selling people as how you are working. You will like same thing like people hold on to like, you know, I really like this line and I, I don't want to change this line. Mm-hmm. It's like a line and you see people holding on to it like this. And yeah. There's lots yeah. of lines I've written that I adore that I can't use for whatever reason because design changed or the story changed. You're just like, let it go. Your ability isn't that line. That's not your work. Your ability is to write a line that's even better than that that fits. And, and that is that is sort of like your value as a creative. It's not what you've done, it's what you can do next. Yeah, what you're back. capable of and what you're, yeah, is the fact that you can create ideas that work. That, that's all. Yeah. And let go of the ones that don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of, a lot of, there's people, there's great ideas and a lot of great ideas I see as ships. You can get on it and they'll sail you to a place. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to get off that idea, but the place it sells you to has a better idea there. So it wasn't worthless. It's not like you were dumb for following that rabbit hole or dumb for writing that draft. It's bringing you to a better place. And your ability to let go of that ship and go, oh, but there's a better ship here. Or there's a treasure on this island or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Hey, right? Evan, do you experience that with your students? Do you, how do you wean them of that? Yeah, I mean, they, I try to simulate those kind of changes in the, in the courses so that I surprise them with <laughs> things they didn't realize were going to happen. So. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have them write a short again I hope no one's listening because uh, <laughs> I'm giving away some of my trade secrets but you know I, I mean they come through a certain sequence of classes in this program so you know I will have them you know find that the movie they told me was their favorite movie now they've got to write a scene in it as if it were a game and they would not have chosen that movie if they knew what the assignment was going to be later on or two semesters later mm-hmm. so I, I, I kind of try to throw curveballs at them for that reason uh, so that they do not know what's because being a game writer, like like you were, you were implying, just like being a game designer, it's all iterative, and we are constantly on shifting ground in game development. Mm-hmm. And you you may write a great scene, and the, uh, you know, and you find out the next day that the level has been cut, mm-hmm. if that scene was going to be in, right. or, or whatever. So I try to instill in them, uh, you know, very thick skin to be able to receive and give feedback in a, in a compassionate way, but a constructive way, but also to deal with the unexpected. And to not never know what's going to come next, because when you're a, when you're a game developer, and I think especially a game writer, in some ways, you you walk into every assignment really not knowing what to expect. Like like Shannon said earlier, there's every studio has its own way of developing games. We all know that, and there's you know there's no standardization. So that kind of flexibility and adaptability, and the ability to let go of what you did before because circumstances have changed again, is something I you know I try to instill um, in my students and. It's not easy. It's not easy for anybody. I mean, I, I, I try to, you know, it's, it's never easy to come up with a perfect solution for something and then the problem the next day has changed to a different problem. Um, because, you know, but part of it is letting it go. Part of it is also tucking it away because sometimes you write something that could be useful somewhere else down the line. Some little twist or turn that you figured out that no longer applies here. Maybe, maybe in a different form could be applied in a future story. So I try to think that way too. That's, yeah, like in fact, just two days ago, I incorporated into a pitch a concept I had 25 years ago <laughs> before I was even nice. in games. 
but it was like a more musical sort of thing. I was like, oh, I can actually use that musical concept and throw it into this game design. And I showed up late to the meeting and everyone was just like, that was amazing. We'd never even thought of anything like this before. What got you to this? They all wanted to hear the history. I didn't even tell them the, the full history because as much as they wanted to hear it, we had a meeting to get on with. But like, <laughs> I felt it felt so interesting to be able to pull back on something that's that old. And it's, it felt so fresh to everybody that had heard it. Nice. Well, I really love Evan's just approach to that and like the like the throwing curveballs and doing it in a way that is like compassionate also with, with the feedback like that's I wish I had that as a start of a designer because I felt like so just like like my world were just being shattered you know like you're you were, you were thrown directly into Thunderdome yeah yeah, yeah. you are made in Thunderdome <laughs> there was no well, I mean, it's, it's just like like I was saying some of the benefits of, of being in a program like this is that it took me so long to learn these things myself because there was no one teaching this stuff when I was learning it. We were all learning it on our own through mm -hmm. our own experiences. But now I can kind of jumpstart these young people's perception of this much faster than I ever learned it. I can I can try to, I can have them cover ground that took me you know twenty years to figure out. Yeah. In in in, in a couple of years. So that's the that's what I try to bring to the table. Is you know I try to teach them as much as I can that's going to be relevant to, to what they want to do when they get out of school and, and the rest is up to them. Obviously they have to do a lot of the work. And as you know, we, we get out, we, we put in, so not everyone puts in hundred percent, but those that do go above and beyond, they'll have a good chance. Yeah. I mean, I always encourage people to practice gratitude. If you're working creative, it's like, you're not going to, you're all, you're not all your ideas are going to hit. Not all your ideas are going to shift. You're going to do really good work. That's not going to reach an audience. But if you, if you are actually getting paid to being a creative, whether or not your stuff gets rewritten or redesigned, sit with yourself every day when you have that hard day of like, oh, someone trampled me creatively and just like sit in your center and go, I got paid to have ideas or to write things today and practice that gratitude, I think is a really good like, like coping mechanism, I think, for a lot of artists. Because we get really wrapped up in like, you know, wanting to win in terms of ideas and wanting to win in terms of creative dominance. And that won't happen all the time. And just going back to being like kind of, wow, I paid rent this month because I was writing or because I was designing and for no other reason. And being grateful that you're one of those people who get to do that and starting from there. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, I think do you guys have anything else to add. No, I'm right I there with that, you. That was, that was great. That was, yeah, I'm 100%. No, that was really fun. It was just nice to actually just have game dev drinks, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, all it's, that. it's nice <laughs> to hang out. Like, I mean, the, the the podcast part of it is like, oh, yeah, we have to keep the conversation going and interesting. But, like, honestly, it's just cool to, like, Evan, hearing kind of your background and just your path through it is, it's, it's just cool. Like, I, I love hearing everybody's story. They're so unique, and we learn so many of the same things together. We're all kind of in the same generation of game developers. We all came in probably early 2000s, thereabouts, right? Or, yeah, or... 2001 for me. Yeah, I, same, same was, with me. Yeah, I was 2009 coming into gaming. Yeah. But, I mean, we, we, we in other words, we, we all found our own way through the process. And it's fascinating to hear how similar, how much overlap there is between us. Mm -hmm. of our, our backgrounds and our skill sets and, and our paths th that got us into games and then carried us to where we are now, which is, you know, 
that's pretty cool. It's very, very interesting. I think, you know, going back to like sort of like what the overall, you know, theme of this episode is, is that there's not one way to get into this. You, you just have to have goals, but also be flexible enough to know that like where you think you're going to be might not be where you end up and being okay with that creatively too. Right. Yeah. And being, like I said, being in a job doesn't, doesn't exist today. Like, yeah, like yeah. that going to be invented in 10 years. You'll probably be there when it gets invented. Yeah. <laughs> right. no, I, I love that idea of encouraging people to like not limit themselves, right? Like just because your job doesn't exist yet doesn't mean it's not going to. And you get to be the one to create your job, to create your career. And you're not limited to anyone else other than what you think you can try to do. That's the whole premise of this book, um, Designing Your Life, but from the Stanford D School, which is their design school. It's their intro to design courses, whether it's graphic design, architecture, it doesn't matter. They, they go, go through this course first, where you may learn that you just appreciate architecture, but you don't want to be an architect. Uh, so why don't we figure out who you are, what fuels you, what drains you, and let's create a career for you that is more in line with who you are rather than what you think you like. That's lovely. I think that's a good read. That sounds like a good yeah. read. I should read that. It totally kicked me in the pants in terms of like starting my own company. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm good there. Mostly, I just focus on teaching my students how to ultimately how to think and create. That will hopefully carry them through whatever they end up doing, whether it's game writing or, or not. That's you know, I'm hoping that I'm teaching them, equipping them to have the skills to do anything creative they want. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what it is. I mean, I keep. I keep going back to that, like, what are the skill sets that have helped me? And it's literally creativity, critical thinking, creative problem solving skills. You because are so good your medium that, keeps yeah. changing, right? Like your yeah. skill, like the problem set keeps changing. It's not like one thing that you're taught. You right. know, the landscape and your ability is just to adapt to that and go, what is the problem here now in this new, you know, world order? And how do I solve the problem or help solve the problem? What, what's my value in this? Yeah. Kind of fun. That's that's the question that has guided me ever since I was a producer in the core tech department at Crystal. It was what is the problem you were trying to solve? Because I would have an engineer that was just like could not explain the complexity of the math or whatever he was doing, and I was like, it's been two weeks. I need to know what is the problem this thing is solving so that I can understand where it goes in the priority. And I got that question from a producer that taught me, but it had such a clear effect of driving home the unarticulated goal or the unarticulated problem that in the un, in seeing it and that uh, question yes. has guided uh, my design yeah. ever since yeah yeah and whenever i hear that someone says that like what's the problem you're trying to solve and I, i'm not just trying to say this to like blow smoke up your ass but that's like the smart person question yep. because there's so people will start talking and they'll have all these ideas and you're just like okay okay whoa, whoa, whoa. right what's going on right now Let's what come, is the yeah. issue yeah. okay is what you're saying contributing to solving that issue, or is that just an idea that you had? Let's it also helps you because you might not know what the problem is. Yeah. So you're just asking, and then you get to RT, like, oh, okay. And then you get that moment of like, okay, now I see what that person's saying. Mm-hmm. Now, like instead of just shutting someone down because you don't understand what they're talking about. Yeah. Like you just do you need them to say. It's it's What's really it's cool to see hear you saying that just so um, casually as if it's just been your operate modus operandi all the time because I'm like 
not enough people say that question. Not enough people ask or get to that heart of it that quickly. I think a lot of that has to do with people wanting to, to, to seem like they're smart and they know everything all the time. I'll be honest. There, there's a lot of, e like, yeah. you know, because, because it's, it's cause there's a lot of competition. Their identity is, yeah. People are afraid of asking dumb questions. Well, they've grown people up are afraid being a know-it-all, right? It's like your identity yeah, is Yeah, I know everything. I'm a game designer, like, ah. Uh, but it's, it's done in Cougar, right? Like, so, which I'm going to actually do an episode about that. Um, <laughs> uh, it drives me insane. I mean, for me, I'll tell people straight up when they work with me, you know, I, ha I have value in myself as creative. I know how to bring it. I know how to create problem solve. But I will, I will tell people, I'm like, I'm going to ask you a bunch of fucking stupid questions. I'm not going to assume anything. Because as soon as I assume something, I'm going to get into trouble here. I need to make an ass out of you and me. Yeah. yeah right like listen like this is your game this is your studio or whatever it is i just walked in here i'm not assuming that my experience is 100 percent accurate you know applicable I'm, I'm assuming that there's all these other things going on that i don't know so i'm going to ask you the question right now and i literally will say in meetings and it's a good it's a good way of like you know be like whether i'm pitching an idea or asking a question like stupid question or okay this idea is dumb but I'm going to pitch it because I feel like it addresses the problem and it'll get us to the next idea. I will literally caveat that way. Just move. Like, I'm just going to say the stupid thing right now yeah. to move things forward. I'm going to be the idiot right now. I'm going to make the mistake. It's because your ego is not wrapped up in it. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that tends to disarm other people too when yeah. you do that. It, it's it, true. It gets, them out, it gets them out of their egos. That's, right. It's that's like really saying, hey, we're all just going to like take a creative dump here. And it's okay, because what we're going to get out of it is going to yeah. be worthwhile. So this is the end of this podcast, because we've been talking way too long, and I can talk to you guys forever, and I'll have you guys on again. This was so much fun. fun. I would so do it again. Okay. Yeah, it's great. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me on, and yeah, great, to, great, great to see you both. It was really good seeing yeah. you. It's a, one is... day we'll be able to have game dev drinks again. Okay. Yeah, some, someday we'll we'll see each other again in person somehow. I know, and we'll be in a loud place where we can't actually talk to each other. I think if you just have a game <laughs> game consultant pod, we can all cough on each other. It's fine. Hang <laughs> out. So a typical day in the office then. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> spat, spat on, coughed on, it's the same. Yeah, yeah. Hey, come play the game on my machine. Use my controller and then wipe your face. Yeah. Anyway, guys, this has been really fun, and I'm really drunk because I got expensive Manhattans from this restaurant uh, delivered to me. Well, thank you, Shannon. Yeah. So much appreciate it. Thanks again. Cool. Good night. Thank All you right, folks. Bye, Evan. Bye. Take care. Bye. Take care of yourselves. Stay safe. So that was our very first video game development virtual happy hour. I'm going to try and release at least two or three of these a month with different guests. We'll see how it goes. If you have any questions for us or a topic you'd like us to cover in the series, please write your suggestions in the comment section of our SoundCloud page or tweet them to at evilshannon.com. And that's at E-V-I-L-S-H-A-N-O-N. -N. And please check out the next episode, which includes bonus content from this conversation in which we concentrate on game writing and narrative design specifically on why it's so hard to break into over other game development disciplines, and our thoughts on what it takes to be a professional game writer. Thanks again for joining us, and I'll see you next week on The Edge.